Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Dear listeners, it is February 26th, and it has been a crazy week with a lot of trends that were once fairly niche beginning to break out in a big way, including non-fungible tokens or nifties. If you're completely up to speed on these, you might just switch podcasts right now. If you are still among the many with some unresolved questions, though, we have answers. Nifties are these unique blockchain-based tokens that can represent practically anything from physical assets like rare collectibles, think coins and art, to fully digital items like a cartoon cat or even, unexpectedly, tweets. In fact, this week's guest is David Packman, a longtime venture capitalist who is an investor in one young Canada-based marketplace for digital collectibles called Dapper Labs that's beginning to gain notice thanks to a partnership it struck last fall with the NBA that's allowing it to sell limited edition digital versions of game moments for which people are paying all kinds of prices. Right now, for example, you can go to Dapper Labs and buy your very own limited edition 10-second clip of the lovely and talented Steph Curry landing one of his famous three-pointers, a clip that can set you back anywhere from $10,000 to up to a quarter of a million dollars. And if you're lucky, someone might buy it from you for even more money someday. Of course, it could also prove worthless. Again, if you're confused, you're not alone. Hopefully after our interview with Pacman, who knows a lot about this world, you'll be less confused too. But first, a look at some other things bubbling up this week. Meme stocks are back. This week, as the S&P 500 shed almost 2% in value, retail investors believed to be aligned with the subreddit Wall Street Bets drove up the price of GameStop by 280% before the stock closed this week at a share price of full 109% over Monday's open. GameStop's high this week of $172.20 was a far cry from the $483 stock price that it hit in January, but it was still a jolt. Yes, GameStop's CFO resigned this week, but Ed Moya, a senior market analyst at Oanda, told the Washington Post yesterday that he thinks the fact that GameStop's options contracts expire on Friday might be the real culprit. The higher the stock price, the better the chance that holders of call options will be able to sell in the money. GameStop wasn't the only equity to receive love from social media investors. CostCorp and AMC also surged this week before ultimately falling back to earth. Reddit traders like Roaring Kitty, the online persona of Keith Gill, the purported leader of the original GameStop rally in January, maintain with a straight face that there is actually something to like about GameStop. Gill told the U.S. House Financial Services Committee last week that GameStop has the potential to reinvent itself as the ultimate destination for gamers within the thriving $200 billion gaming industry. But come on, this is GameStop we're talking about, the blockbuster of the video game market. The real message here may just be that congressional hearings are not going to put a damper on social meme stock trading. At least, not for now. In other news, it feels like a race has formed in the lucrative world of beauty products. It's not a race over who can get their new cream or gloss or hair color into the home of customers, but rather who can build out the platform that shoppers turn to when they're looking for unbiased advice about the products they should be buying. 
there's certainly a need for one given that a lot of the information out there isn't considered credible because of affiliate marketing, meaning outlets are pushing brands that are paying them to help sell their goods. Meanwhile, the direct-to-consumer market has completely exploded with new brands over the last five to 10 years. On the one hand, it's a great time to be a shopper. On the other hand, those choices can feel overwhelming. Apparently, investors and founders also see the opportunity for a more authoritative platform to emerge here. Just today, two companies announced funding that are hoping to become go-to destinations for shoppers. One is called Newness, and it just announced $3.5 million in seed funding led by Sequoia Capital, with participation from a long list of other investors, including Alexia Bonazzos of Dream Machine. The company was started by former Twitch employees who are taking what they learned about live streaming and applying it to the beauty market. The idea is to let people connect with others who are passionate about beauty and who may even have their own products to sell, and to invite viewers to interact with them in real time, rewarding those viewers for quality participation. The second related deal was for a young startup called Thing Testing, which is a social e-commerce and discovery platform that promises its users unbiased recommendations so they can better assess all the new D2C products out there. It just raised $2 million from Forerunner Ventures, which is a big deal considering Forerunner's enviable track record when it comes to choosing breakout e-commerce brands. But it does face competition. Just two weeks ago, for example, a very similar company called The Fascination started garnering press over its aim of making sense of the proliferation of direct-to-consumer brands. The Fascination is just two months old and was founded by two early employees of the direct-to-consumer mattress brand Lessa Sleep. I don't know that they've raised funding yet, but the idea is to build a marketplace where people can buy goods from more than 100 purpose-driven brands. In the meantime, all three are bumping up against a startup that Benchmark quietly funded in early winter called Supergreat a two-year-old New York-based site for beauty enthusiasts. What the startup is seemingly building is a growing community of visitors who become reviewers, who then become shoppers as they're assigned super coins that they use to purchase other goods. It's all part of a virtuous cycle of engagement, as Benchmark Sarah Tavel has called it. It's obviously early days, which is a lot of the fun here, but it looks like some of the heaviest hitters, meaning Sequoia, Benchmark, and Forerunner, have already made their respective bets. Still, we'll be interested to see who emerges from here. Up next, our conversation with David Pakman of Venrock about nifties. But first, a word from our sponsor. Connie, you know you should be using a VPN. What's holding you back? I don't know. They're just so slow. Yep. But a recent test by AV Test found that NordVPN is up to 3x faster than the competition. I've been using NordVPN for the last month, it's true, and I haven't noticed any dip in performance. What about security? NordVPN doesn't log your data, and it offers double data encryption for increased anonymity. Wow. I know VPNs are great when you're on your computer in a cafe or in an airport, but we're not going anywhere these days. That's true. But say you're researching a story. No matter where you go, you can remain anonymous. Go to nordvpn.com slash strictlyvc or use code strictlyvc to get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. If for whatever reason you're not satisfied, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. You're so formal. How about if I just use your subscription? That works too. One NordVPN account will cover six devices at once. Sold. For more information about NordVPN, please visit nordvpn.com slash strictlyvc today.
we're really excited today to have David Packman of Venrock joining us. David, thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for having me here. There's so much news right now about these, I guess they're called nifties, these non-fungible tokens. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And Alex is trying to figure out what's going on. And we think that listeners and readers are trying to figure this out as well. So I really appreciate you talking us through this. But first, for people who don't know you, you were an internet entrepreneur. You've been with Venrock for the last dozen years or so. But could you just give us a little bit of an overview about your background? Yeah, sure. I was a computer science engineer a long time ago. I worked at Apple for five or six years. I did a bunch of music-related things at Apple, and then I was an entrepreneur for a decade or so, did a couple different venture-backed startups in the digital music space, and and now I'm an investor. I've been a a VC for, as you mentioned, about 12 years, focused on early-stage tech companies. And one area I've been focused on the last four or five years is crypto. And so I think we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, that's terrific. So I don't know how many related bets you have. One that's particularly interesting to me right now because it's in the headlines is Dapper Labs, which before we get into things, I have to ask, is it possible for you to confirm this report in the block that it was raising $250 million at a $2 billion valuation with Code 2 as the lead? Is that public? I can't confirm their fundraising plans. They haven't announced anything, but we did lead their last financing. And so we're investors in the company, Dapper Labs, and we're also investors in the blockchain that they built, which is called Flow. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So when you say their last round, was that that $15 million round in 2018? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. And so how did you come into contact with the company in the first place? Was it introduced to you through one of their earlier VCs? Yeah, no, I um, had been watching what's going on in crypto land, like many crypto people. And in December of 2017, they launched this sort of experiment of, can you put cats on a blockchain? And CryptoKitties was the name. And and that experiment really exploded in December. And people were sort of, it's a miniature collectible game. You buy a cat on the internet and you own it. And the record of your ownership is written down in the blockchain. So there's immutable proof that you own this. And then you can use this cat in a sort of lightweight game where you can breed it with other people's cats and you can collect them and trade them. And that was an experiment, but the experiment was very well received and a bunch of the cats increased in value and there were a little marketplace emerged. So when I saw that, I connected with the company and really wanted to work with them. And within about six months, we were able to invest I think like one of the biggest problems with crypto, the reason it scares so many people is it uses all these really esoteric terms to explain really very basic concepts. So let's just keep it really simple. A lot of people collect things. About 40% of humans collect things. What do we mean? Baseball cards or shoes or artwork or wine or tchotchkes or antiques. A lot of us are collectors. And there's a whole bunch of psychological reasons why we do that. And it's different for everyone. Some people have a need to complete a set. Some people do it for investment reasons. We think it will increase in value over time. Some people want to create an heirloom to pass down. Some people do it because it like provides some order in the world. There's like all these reasons why we do it. It's fun. Sometimes the things we collect are really useful, like clothing. We could use it and wear it, but sometimes it's not very useful, like little tchotchkes and we display them. But in any case, people collect. But the problem is we can only collect things in the real world. Mm because digital collectibles are too easy to copy. Mm -hmm. And the blockchain came around and said, actually, we can make digital collectibles immutable, that that we can have a record of who owns what, and you can't really copy it. I mean, you could screenshot it, but you don't really own the digital collectible and you won't be able to do anything with that screenshot. You won't be able to sell it or trade it. The proof is in the blockchain. So I was a believer 
that crypto-based collectibles, digital collectibles, could be really big and actually could be the thing that takes crypto mainstream, that gets the normals into participating in crypto. And that's exactly what's happening now. You mentioned a lot of reasons that people collect items online. I think one of those reasons also is status. Look how many fancy cars I have in my garage. Is the mentality a little bit different online? Because I'm not sure exactly, again, as somebody who's just getting acquainted with all of the stuff, how you show off or use what you've amassed online. How do I telegraph to people that I have this collection? I think you're right that one of the other reasons why we collect is to show it off status, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, notoriety. I would actually argue it's it's much easier to show off our collections in the digital world than in the physical world. If I'm a car collector, the only way you're going to see my cars is to come over to the garage, right? Mm -hmm. And only a certain number of people can do that. But online, we can display our digital collections. In fact, NBA Top Shot, which is the, the current collectible game that Dapper Labs has released, makes it very easy for you to show off your moments which is what you collect. Everyone has a page and there's an app that's coming and you can just show it off to anyone on your app and you can post it to your social networks. And it's actually really easy to, to show off your status of how big or exciting your collection is. So it's going to be easier to let people know about our great collections online. Let's go back to this NBA Top Shot thing, which I guess Dapper rolled out in October. And I was reading Ledger Insights, the outlet, and it said that though it rolled it out in October, cumulative sales have topped 123 million, but 60 million has come in through the last week or so. So what is going on? What drove that kind of interest? Yeah, your, your data is right. In the last seven days, they probably did about $100 million of sales. And let's just make sure we know what we're talking about when we talk about sales. There's two ways to buy a moment. You can buy it in a pack, just like when you, people used to buy baseball or Pokemon cards. And those packs come out twice a week. It's called a drop, just like when Supreme releases a new t-shirt or Nike drops a new shoe. A moment is literally like a clip of 15 seconds of an NBA game. Yep. It's a clip from a great moment in sports. In this case, the NBA, a dunk, a three-pointer, a foul, a game-winning buzzer beater. And there's a limited number of moments that are created. Each one has some scarcity to it, right? Just like baseball cards, only a certain number of them printed up. And that scarcity is coded in software, so it can't change later. Like Dapper can't say, oh, I know we only made 20 of those, but now we're going to create 100 and devalue your investment. That can't happen. So they make moments and you can get in line and try to buy them in packs. But those are selling out in under 60 seconds. They've sold millions of dollars of moments but everyone is sold out within 60 seconds. And this is a pack of five moments and you don't know what you're going to get. It's like a Pokemon set. Exactly. Sometimes they tell you things like this drop or this pack has a minimum of one rare moment or one legendary moment. So you know you're getting something good, but you don't know what you're getting. So that's one way that people have been buying them. But then if you aren't lucky enough to win the lottery in the queue, there is a marketplace like eBay for moments and it's live 24 hours a day and people are buying and selling those moments that they've gotten from packs. And some of them are really inexpensive and, and some are going for a lot of money. One sold for 208,000 on Monday, a couple of LeBrons sold for 100K each, and then some are selling for five and $10. So there's a bunch of different price action happening. And when you combine these two things, the, the drops, pack sales, plus the marketplace sales, those are the numbers that you get to about $100 million in sales in the last week. David, what has triggered this sudden gold rush of activity? I think it's worth saying that there's only about maybe 30 or 40,000 people playing right now. It's growing 50 or 100% a day. A lot of new people coming in every day. 
but the growth has been completely organic. The game is actually still in beta. Anyone can play it, but we haven't been doing any marketing other than posting some stuff on Twitter. There's been no attempt to sort of market this and get a lot of players. We're still working the bugs out and there are a lot of bugs still to be worked out. But a couple NBA players have seen this and gotten excited about their own moments. And there's maybe a little bit of machismo going on where, hey, you know, I want my moment to trade for a higher price. Why aren't more people buying my moment? <laughs> so there's been some uh, social media attention by a couple NBA players. But I think it's really been the normals who are playing this. Yes, there are some crypto people who are playing it, but all you need is credit card. And something like 60 or 65% of the people playing have never owned or traded in crypto before. So I think the thesis that crypto collectibles could be the thing that brings mainstream users into crypto is playing out before our eyes. And that's one reason why it's got such great growth. You talked about the two ways in which people can buy these moments. Just to be clear, you guys are paid in different ways for those different types of transactions. If you're selling the pack, you're collecting the revenue 100%. If you're participating in secondary sales, your company gets 5%. And my understanding is that you guys have made about five to seven million or so in direct sales and maybe five to seven million in secondary sales. Is that correct? I haven't done the math on our exact revenue, but you're right that we get 5% of secondary sales. And of course, 100% minus the cost of the transaction on primary sales. But of course, we got a relationship with the MBA, right? Who collects some of that too. But yeah, that's the basic economics of how the system works. And does the NBA have a minimum that it has to be paid every year? And then above and beyond that, it receives a, a cut of the action? I don't think the company's uh, you know, sort of gone public with the, the exact economic terms of the relationships with the NBA and the Players Association. But obviously, the NBA as the IP owner and the, the teams and the players have economic participation in this, which is good because they're the ones that are creating the intellectual property here. It's very similar to baseball cards, right? Tops. Baseball cards had a deal with Major League Baseball, and there's some split between them when they, they sell the packs. But, but what's different now is back then when you went to a baseball card convention and you bought or sold your baseball cards, Major League Baseball and the teams and the players did not participate in any of the economics of those secondary transactions. But now IP owners can participate through the life of the product forever in the downstream economic activity of their intellectual property, which I think is super appealing, whether you're the MBA or you're someone like Disney, who's been in the IP licensing business for decades. I think it's very appealing to owners. And it's not just major IP where this NFT space is happening. It's individual creators, musicians, digital artists who could create a piece of digital art, make only five copies of it, auction it off. And, and they too can collect a little bit each time their works sell in the future. One thing, David, that I found confusing was going back to the NBA Top Shot sales, they seemed like they were all over the place, including for the same product, although there was a limited number of them. Why would people be paying such vastly different prices for the same item? Yeah, I think there's two reasons for it. One is like scarce items, lower numbers are worth more than higher numbers, right? So if there's a LeBron very particular moment and they made 500 of them and I own number one and you own number 399, the marketplace is ascribing a higher value to the lower numbers, which is very typical of uh, limited edition collector pieces. It's sort of a funny concept, but it is a very human concept, right? Number one's worth more than 399. That may explain why the exact same moment is priced differently. But the other thing is over time, there's been more and more demand to get into this game. And so people are willing to pay higher and higher prices. So that's one reason why 
there's been a lot of price appreciation for these moments over time. David, when you guys invested, my understanding is that Top Shot wasn't a working proposition. And you guys were investing based on the success of the CryptoKitties project. How did you get comfortable with the idea of investing in this company and the prospects of convincing the NBA to sign on? And how did the company persuade the NBA and the Players Association that this was a real market? I'm not right about a lot of things. So when I am, I like to talk about it. (laughs) In 2018, I wrote a blog post about what our investment thesis was in Dapper Labs. Why are we investing? It's still out there. It's on Pacman.com. And it talks about crypto collectibles really having the potential to be super, super big for all the reasons that we already talked about earlier today. So I had a real core conviction that this concept could really work. Now, what you need besides a concept is an incredible team. And the Dapper Labs team is extraordinary. I mean, they invented the ERC-721 standard that was the creation of the first NFT. So they have deep technical chops in the crypto space. They realized that the Ethereum blockchain, which was the blockchain on which CryptoKitties was built, would be inadequate to support a really popular game like this. So they had to build their own blockchain. Why? I'm sorry, why is that? It's a bunch of technical reasons, but but one is because it doesn't scale very well for transactions that have high velocity. So if we're like going to do a drop of 10,000 moments, they're going to sell out in 60 seconds. Ethereum couldn't handle that many transactions per second. It would just break, which is actually what happened when they launched CryptoKitties. And another major reason is that the costs to use the Ethereum blockchain are very high, the cost per transaction. And you don't want to waste your money on just the transaction itself, it should be much lower cost. So scalability and cost were some reasons, but they had to build their own blockchain, which they did. It's called Flow and Topshot is built on top of Flow. So my point is this team is extraordinary. They had chops to both build a great gaming experience, which is quintessential, and also the technical chops to build it on top of a blockchain that could scale. And I think the MBA and, and other IP owners have seen the quality of this team the important point here, I think, is this is not the only product that the Dapper is going to release. They're, they're going to release many. They're sort of more the flow company than they are the NBA Top Shot company. And, and I think we're going to see many, many crypto collectibles ecosystems built on top of flow, which is going to make this thing much, much bigger than it already is. David, did I hear you say at the beginning that you're investors in both flow and Dapper Labs or is flow an asset of Dapper Labs? Yes to both questions. So Flow is a blockchain that Dapper Labs built, and Dapper Labs does have a big ownership stake in that blockchain, but they have sold tokens, which are essentially slices of economic activity on that blockchain, to a lot of non-Dapper owners. And we are also investors in the Flow token. So meaning some cryptocurrency exchanges will sell Flow. Interesting. And is anyone else using the Flow blockchain to build apps? Yes, I think there's about uh, 30 or 40 announced projects today that are building on top of Flow. We expect there to be many more now because uh, remember, one of the reasons to collect these moments is not just to collect them, but to actually use them in games. So an example of one game that already exists today is complete the set, you know, a collection, but there are many more games coming. There is a sort of fantasy game coming where you will use your moments to play against another player and their moments. And any developer could now build games on top of Flow that lets you, the user, use your Top Shot moments in that game. So I expect we might see hundreds of other games just built around Top Shot alone 
never mind other collectible universes. David, you have a long background in music, and I'm wondering if you're thinking about using flow in tokenizing music as well. I think we've seen a lot of interest from artists who want to be more in control of their own creative sales. They want to take their output and be more in control of the economic activity around that output. And NFTs definitely allow you to create a limited edition piece of music, five copies or a hundred copies of a song. Other people may be able to, just like you could screenshot a digital item, could copy the music file, but they won't actually be the owner of it. They wouldn't be able to trade it. So I'm optimistic that there might be a potential vein of activity with music and NFTs. However, unlike other IP universes, the overwhelming amount of music in this world, more than 90% of all commercially released music is controlled by a very small number of companies, fewer than 10. And so you need the participation, (laughs) the willingness of the record labels and the publishers to license large amounts of the catalog into an open NFT ecosystem. And I'm super skeptical that'll ever happen. Wasn't there a case where Wu-Tang Clan sold one album to a hedge fund guy, Martin Scarelli or something like that? (laughs) Yeah. I think what you're pointing out, Alex, is there's a lot of evidence that people would like to collect rare musical works. You know, you used to hear the stories about record producers who could, if you got lucky enough, you'd get invited over their house and they would have these rare sessions or this unreleased incredible recording by this artist. Or a lot of times, posthumously, we hear an artist releases some rare recordings. Those rare recordings exist. You could monetize them, right? Create a real scarce number of pressings, if you will, of digitally. So I, I think you're right that there's probably demand for it, but it is a, precisely a question of rights more than one of technology. David, can you also help me understand or help us understand a nifty gateway? And if that is ultimately a direct competitor to Dapper Labs, because I know that they are also working on partnering with celebrities to create these non-fungible tokens. I think there's going to be hundreds of companies, maybe thousands of companies that either create original NFTs or partner with existing IP owners to tokenize existing IP. This is going to be a really big thing. Some of it's going to fail. And Dapper's not going to be the only company in the NFT space. And they're not today. There already are some people doing really exciting stuff. As an investor, then, how do you think about this? Some of these auction houses, for example, are known for different types of things. So does Dapper Labs become the place to go for sports collectibles? And maybe there's another marketplace that tackles another vertical. How do you kind of invest without creating conflicts of interest? Yeah, that's totally fair. I think that Dapper, if everything continues to go well, will be a company that releases a number of successful crypto collectible ecosystems, some originally created, some in partnership with existing IP owners. So let's call it sports and entertainment collectibles. And each of those ecosystems, like the Top Shot one, I think we'll see hundreds of other companies building games or apps around or utilities. So each one of these collectible universes will be really interesting economic ecosystems. And and Dapper will operate those. Now, they also operate for each one of them, a marketplace where you can buy and sell your moments. Those moments will be able to be tradable elsewhere too, but they will operate sort of clean, well-lighted marketplaces that you can trust. And so I think you'll see them do that. However, long-term, if you pull pull up to 10,000 feet, they operate the platform on which all of this activity can happen, which is the Flow blockchain. It was specifically designed for supporting very large and popular crypto collectible universes and ecosystems. And super long term, 
I think they're the platform company that operates them that maybe still operates a few ecosystems on top. And then for people who are just checking this stuff out now, you have to get a wallet in order to store your collectibles, which you also can access through Dapper Labs. We don't really use that language because it's a confusing word. Well, you're right. It is a wallet. And in crypto world, people know what wallet means. But wallet's a strange word for the normals. So you just open an account, right? You use a username and a password. You put a credit card in, you buy a moment, and then you're playing. It's that simple. I think something that scares people is when they read things like 20% of all Bitcoin are now inaccessible to their owners because they forgot their password. Is it sort of the same here where if you use this storage capacity and you do forget your password, you're screwed? It's a complex topic, Connie, but I will say that Dapper has tried to build this in a way where that won't happen, right? That there's a effectively some type of password recovery process for people who are storing your moments in Dapper's wallet. You will be able to take your moments away from Dapper's account, if you will, and put it into other accounts where you may be on your own in terms of password recovery. So the reason I say it's complex is because there are some people who believe that even though centralized account storage is uh, convenient for users, it's somehow distrustful that the company could deplatform you or turn your account off. And in the crypto world, there's was almost a religious ferocity about making sure that no one can deplatform you, that you own the things that you buy, your cryptocurrencies or your NFTs. And so long-term Dapper supports that. You'll be able to take your moments anywhere you want. But today, our customers don't have to worry about that. I lost my password and I'll never get my moments again problem. So David, I also was just curious what you make of what Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said yesterday about creating a U.S. digital coin and what the implications of that would be, including for Bitcoin, but also obviously for Dapper. Well, first I should say, I think for the most part, cryptocurrencies are misnamed for what they are today. When people hear the word currency, they think I can use it to pay people, right? Because that's what we think about currencies. But today, most cryptocurrencies are so volatile that you would never use it for that, right? Mm-hmm. I would buy one for a dollar. Tomorrow it's worth 50 cents. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give it to you because the day after that, it could be worth $4. So really today, they are crypto assets. They're places that you store value. You put money in to buy them and you maybe hold them over time because you think they're going to go up in, in value. That's mostly what many of them are today. And in fact, I think NFTs are sort of also stores of value. I, I buy the moments because I think it's a good place for me to hold money. They should store some value there for a long time. However, if cryptocurrencies or crypto assets are not volatile, then they can act as an unbelievably convenient and low-cost way to transfer money or value. So if there was a U.S. digital coin, by the way, there already are, they're called stable coins, a sort of U.S. digital dollar. It's just not run by the United States. USDC, for instance, is a digital coin you could buy for $1 and it's always worth a dollar. If the US had one and controlled one, boy, it sure would be a really quick and easy way for them to put money in your pocket if they needed to. As a mechanism for sending payments like tax refunds or uh, stimulus checks to users, we would get our money in a second and we wouldn't have to wait for the check to clear. And the cost of that transaction would be unbelievably small. So it saved the US government a lot of money from refund checks from the IRS or even ACH into your account. It costs more money than sending it out on a blockchain. So I would fully expect most governments to try to do national digital currencies. The irony is they actually don't have to do that. There's already a bunch of other 
currencies that they could use, but they want to have some control over them. And so uh, it's inevitable that there will be a U.S. digital coin controlled by the U.S. government. But apples and oranges, essentially. And so that's why we didn't really see Bitcoin, I guess, impacted so much by that statement. I guess before we let you go, I I do want to know what your thoughts are on this run. I mean, people are saying it's going to be a hundred trillion dollar asset class Bitcoin, but of course it's gone up so fast in such a short period of time. Do you think there's a Bitcoin bubble or does this all make perfect sense to you? So I'm terrible at predicting things that happen in the shorter medium term, but I'm not so bad at predicting what's going to happen over the long term, which a little bit easier for all of us as humans. We feel like we could see the future, but we just can't tell you when it's going to happen. I am unbelievably bullish that the entire crypto sector will be worth at least 10x what it is worth now. So Bitcoin will, will unquestionably worth, if it's worth a trillion today, will be worth 10 trillion. And the entire crypto ecosystem could easily be worth $100 trillion over a long period of time. People forget how big these markets are. The financial markets are enormous. And crypto only has applicability to a few very small slices today. Do you know what the largest market in the world is? It's bonds. The bond market is the largest market in the world. And it's really hard today to do a corporate or government bond over crypto. That will come and it'll be much lower cost than doing it through the banking system. But that alone would multiply the value here. And and another thing to think about is very few people actually hold crypto today. But if it became appreciated that this is a good place to put some of your money, if we took 1% to 3% of all of our personal savings and every company like Elon Musk did took 1% to 3% of all the money in their treasury and every investment firm put 1% to 3% of all the money they're investing into crypto, that alone would increase its value six to 10 times. Well, I mentioned in the podcast last week, but I really wish I'd listened to Chamath Palahapitiya, who was saying that exact thing back in 2014 when it was trading at like $500 to $800. (laughs) I should have listened. I should have listened. My family and I, we started mining cryptocurrency in late 2015, early 2016 for a few years. And people would come over and see these racks of computers. What are you doing? It's like, uh, it's sort of hard to explain. Did you, and you managed to mine some? Oh yeah, we mined a lot. We mined a lot of- That's incredible. And you didn't burn anything down in the process? Nope, we didn't catch fire, but our basement was very warm, very warm. (laughs) Did people think you were growing pot in your basement or something? (laughs) It kind of smelled like that. I mean, but it's funny. And now a lot of those people are like, hey, wait, you were basically getting in the crypto wave really early, right? It's like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is really, really interesting. Well, David, thank you so much. It's really been a treat to talk to you. I feel much more informed and hopefully our listeners will as well. It's a great honor to be here on your podcast. Thank you for having me and appreciate what you guys do. It's really fun to listen to. Thanks, everybody. We're going to be spending this weekend trying to create nifties. (laughs) How can we monetize this newsletter even more? Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care.